0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the Business Station. Hello, this is Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Tashan Johan. Historically speaking, a political party or movement that is considered progressive is one that manages to unite the masses against the ruling class who owns the means of production at one point perhaps it was the monarchs and then now you have the tycoons the big businesses and and so on and so forth Um, and the purpose of doing this is to reduce the the wealth gap and, and to build an equitable and egalitarian society So why then do we see the working class masses, especially the poorest people in societies in many parts of the world, vote conservative parties who generally push to reduce the minimum wage, lower taxes on the rich, etc. Joining me on the show today to help me unpack this is a social psychologist, a media researcher and an expert in political economy. I'm talking about Associate Professor Peter Beattie, who's a lecturer in the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Welcome to the show, Peter. How are you? Thank you, Dasha. Great to be here. Why do working class people, or perhaps the poorest people in the nation, vote for conservative candidates?
1: That's a a good question. One tiny little bit of of, uh, clarification here before we start. In the U.S., there's this uh, uh, kind of misapprehension about uh, who the, the, the poor generally vote for. Uh, most generally, the, the poor don't vote. That is, the, the people that tend not to participate in politics the most are the the people with the least income and wealth. Uh, but still today, and, and it, the lead has been cut into a little bit, but still today, uh, the poorest voters tend to vote Democrat it's not as much of a gap as it used to be in the past which is why we hear so much about you know why are our uh, working class people voting Republican or voting for the right but it's been more of a of a slow kind of uh, bleed away from the the Democrats in terms of the votes of of working class people but much more importantly I think for your broader question is uh, this this notion of interest like what is in somebody's interest? And i think the key thing to understand is that interest is always mediated by ideas that is to say like our interests are not just given to us from on high you know like an angel doesn't come down and tell us you know hey peter because you make x amount of income your interest is in voting for you know party y right like every every voting decision even when we are thinking that we're voting in our interest our interest is something that is in the realm of ideas and we get informed about what it is, but it's entirely possible for us to have an incorrect idea about what our interests are. And you know, as soon as you hear that, you probably think, oh boy, here comes the the whole Marxist <laughs> thing about uh, uh false consciousness. Right. And the the funniest thing, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you already, but the funniest thing about the idea of false consciousness is that everybody believes in it. It's not just Marxists, everyone believes in false consciousness of some sort that is they believe that there are people who have a misinformed or, or incorrect idea about their own interests and that of course brings us right back to the realm of ideas where do people get these ideas about what is in their interest and what goes against their interests right so i don't know if i've just uh uh clarified anything or just made the waters muddier, but uh,
0: <laughs> I'll leave that to you to decide. No, but but it's exactly these muddy waters that, that we want to navigate, right, Peter? Because it is a very complex issue. Um, it involves a lot of different aspects, um, psychology, the economy, and, and so many different things. So, let's try to, to to peel back the layers a little bit, right? So, one of the, the, the hypotheses that I've come across is the duping hypothesis, right? Basically, the idea that Poor people are being duped to vote for conservatives via uh, you know populist rhetoric or culture wars. Um, you know it can be about um, you know banning alcohol if you if you're talking about let's say within a Malaysian context. Um, you know it can it can be about abortion laws and, and so on and so forth. Um, LGBT laws, for example. Now, can you explain the, the duping hypothesis? And how much weight does this theory hold? Do you buy into this theory?
1: Sure. I mean, the, the theory, I think you already pretty well described it. It's just the idea that the, the true interest of the poor and working class is to vote for the left, for redistributive policies, for better social services, etc. But uh, these people are duped by appeals to religion or, or you know everything you would put in the category of culture war and then people get distracted by these these cultural issues and then they lose sight of economic issues and that's how they lose sight of what their true economic interest is and they vote for parties that screw them economically but promise to you know do what they want to see done in the in the culture war um i think that there's a lot going for that that hypothesis i mean certainly that is you know very much at the essence of politics is is trying to get more people to to vote for your side or to support your side and that can be done in in very many ways But I think it also kind of gets back to this this troublesome idea of of interest, because, you know, if you ask somebody, uh, certainly in the U.S. where I'm most familiar, who votes for Republicans, who's poor working class, but votes for Republicans because they're uh, very incensed about the culture war issue of the day. A few years ago, it was uh, trans bathrooms. Uh, Now, I don't know what it is, but probably something to do with trans something or other. Um, In their mind, they're interest, their their understanding of what's in their interest might be to see uh, the kind of, of cultural change that that they want to see. Uh, they might think that it's in their interest to make sure that their kids don't have, uh, you know, trans people in the, the same bathroom. Uh, so if you get into their mind, they have a, a clear idea of their interests and they're voting accordingly.
0: So how do those f- uh, interests form?
1: Or more importantly, how do our conceptions of what's in our interest form? And for some things, you know, you can you can kind of gain information and form a conception of your interest just through daily experience, right? Like, if you're uh, working class, poor, uh, you you see a bunch of other people like you. You're all going to work in the same place. The person who owns the place has a very comfortable life and is able to control the streams of income and wealth that are produced by that enterprise. So perhaps, just from this experience, you form a conception of your interest as uh, a worker, and you form an, uh, a desire for policies that would directly benefit workers, by I'd say, you know, redistributing uh, wealth from the business owner to the, the the workers, or or gaining more control of the over the enterprise. So there's some things that you can you can form a conception of your own interest just through personal experience and then kind of thinking about it on your own. Um, but I think most of the the conceptions of interest that people have are informed not just by immediate personal experience, but by sources of information. And there's many different sources. Like you might your main source might be your your local uh, imam or or priest or religious leader. Uh, And they can explain politics to you in a completely different way. It it might be something like, you know, if you are born into a poor family, uh, it's kind of a test God made for you. You can have the opportunity to grow and become a holy person in poverty. Uh, Your real interest lies in ensuring that religious rules are followed because if people follow religious rules – their lives are going to be better. That's why God made the rules in the first place. So they might then come to believe that their their primary interest, even political interest, is in seeing that God's rules are are followed, that uh, his his strictures are implemented, etc. So there, all of these these conceptions of interest. Are, are formed by sources of information, whether they are direct personal experience, whether they are trusted people in your life that teach you things, whether it's the media. You do have a lot of, of working-class people who learn a little bit about theories of economics from school, friends, peers, media, et cetera, that, that tell them uh, actually increasing taxes on the rich hurts your interest too, because then there'll be less money left around for an investment then there will there will be fewer jobs, then you may have a higher risk of unemployment. So it's actually in your interest too, as a working class people person, to, to make sure that the rich are not taxed. Uh, so all of these conceptions of interest, all I'm trying to say is that you can you can trace them back to a source, and and that source will be some kind of of font of information, some kind of place person institution or experience from which we we gathered knowledge that we're now applying in the form of our conceptions of our political interests.
0: So Jonathan Haid, um, who's the author of The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, he said something interesting um, and that Uh, politics at the national level is more like religion than it is like shopping. It's more about a moral vision that unifies a nation and and calls it to greatness than it is about self-interest or specific policies, end quote. How do you respond to this?
1: I think that's largely accurate, that uh, the way that that politics is now, it's not typically thought of as a a simple bean counting exercise where it's like, you know, you vote for this person, you're gonna have X amount of money at the end of four years. You vote for the other person, you'll have Y amount of money at the end of four years. It's it's usually thought in terms of of benefit for the the country overall. Uh, Perhaps it's a thought of a benefit for your particular group or or group that you favor. But yeah, certainly, like the, the, the way that uh, political appeals are made and political debates occur, they're often in the form of, of kind of us versus them group uh, uh, conflict. And then that, that taps into the, the intergroup bias side of our, our brains, which is similar to that of uh, religion when we think of, of people in our religion versus people in another religion.
0: When we talk about you know the, the the national politics being about like this this larger vision rather than about you know personal interests on a very micro level, I need money for healthcare, I need money for this, I need food on the table. Rather, it's about what is the overall vision? What is this long term um, country that we are trying to build? Um, is that why right wing forces? today are, are more powerful um, because there is this, this broader sort of moral, like, you know, issues that you can touch on to try and say, you know, I'm trying to reconstruct, I'm trying to construct a world that cares about family values, that, that puts religion above all. These are all big you know, moral, emotional, you know, uh, you know, sort of elements that can really rile up one's emotion. I'm wondering if that is the benefit or the advantage that the right wing have.
1: It's funny you say that because you just you reminded me of this uh, exhibit at. There's a propaganda exhibit at the Holocaust Museum in Washington D.C., and they had a, a I think it was an op-ed or a letter to the editor from some left-wing workers' paper in Germany in the 1930s, and it was basically just an admission of of kind of defeat in a sense, and and they were saying, you know, we thought that our message about self-interest would would be effective we thought that by telling workers hey you know you've got nothing to lose but your chains if you unite uh we can win you a, a better life better working conditions more pay better uh health care etc cetera, etc um but it turns out that and this is the the, the uh, left-wing i don't know activist a newspaper writer in the 1930s in germany saying this he said it turns out self-interest is not the most effective uh, message the the rights message is one of sacrifice they're saying uh, sacrifice for the good of the country uh, work harder uh, um, you know come together and give up something you know some bit of your freedom some bit of your individuality sacrifice for the greater good and this this newspaper uh, uh, writer was saying wow this is actually much more effective people respond to uh, a call for sacrificing for the greater good of the community that's a much more effective uh, message. And you might be you know, touching on, on something uh, similar today. Perhaps there's something about that kind of a message that works also today.
0: On the show with me today is Associate Professor Peter Beattie, lecturer at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. After the break, we continue our discussion on why working class people vote against their own interests. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashran Johan. And on the show with me today is Associate Professor Peter Beattie um, from the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And he's a social psychologist, media researcher and an expert in political economy. And our discussion today is on why working class people across the globe seems to be voting against their own interests. So what does that mean? We are breaking that down. So there was an assumption that the pandemic... Um, for many, many years, the left was saying, you know, that there was this narrative that when something that is so economically devastating to the regular people on the ground happens on such a large scale, that's when we will have this collective class awakening, the collective consciousness that oh, so now I finally see the world for how it actually works and and so on and so forth. And it's, you know, it's about, uh, you know, uniting the the, the working class against the top 1% and and all of these things. But then something that devastating actually did happen and that's the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, You know, millions of millions of people died over, uh, you know, over the past couple of years, um, past three years. Um, Billionaires and trillionaires became, became richer the working class masses became poorer. But yet, maybe it did improve class consciousness a little bit. But for the most part, it seems that it has only emboldened the right-wing conservative movements. Why do you think this is?
1: Oh, that's uh, that's a good question. I mean, (laughs) that reminds me of somebody pointing out at the beginning that the COVID experience was going to be a a, um, a dress rehearsal for the climate <laughs> crisis, and uh, we didn't do too well there. You know the the question of, of did it seem like the right was better able to use the the pandemic than the left? And certainly, you know, the, the pandemic didn't result in some sort of you know mass uh, awakening and, and movement of organizing the, the working class. Um, but you know, from from my perspective, from Hong Kong, looking at uh, the U.S. primarily, you know, following what friends and family were were saying there, it just seemed uh, quite crazy to me, like perfectly crazy, just unhinged. Um, the the liberal side, from what I heard, was was very much pushing this idea of personal responsibility. You as an individual should make choices that uh, uh, result in the virus spreading less, which seemed kind of nuts to me because individual effort is meaningless when you're dealing with a pandemic it's it's a collective response or nothing little individual virtue isn't going to do anything and then on the right uh, it soon became a, a or uh, well i guess from the very beginning in the us it was uh, very skeptical about the whole uh the severity of the disease and then later kind of drifted more into vaccine skepticism and uh, uh opposition to any sort of measure to, to control the virus it just seems crazy to me because the response in hong kong and i think in much of this hemisphere <laughs> was much more uh, sensible it seemed to me like a, 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 a an intelligent or even a, a socialist state it seems would react in much the same way prioritize the protection of human life if that means closing the borders if that means quarantining people that is to say stepping on individual liberties for the for the sake of the greater good uh that's what a lot of governments in this part of the world did and and i was pretty satisfied with that you know not having uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of, of deaths here for for the first 2 years of the of the pandemic meanwhile in the west uh perhaps it was a reaction to the the liberal uh position which was very much focused on individual virtue and 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 doing the right thing as an individual and then the other option was uh to have with all of this, this is a shambles, and we're just going to be very distrustful of any sort of government intervention here. I don't know, I, I guess my best answer would just be when you have the the ostensible left in the West, the, the, the liberals pushing this individual responsibility narrative, uh, it could just be a, a matter of that narrative or that message being so unattractive that the next option was viewed as uh, you know, the, the most acceptable. But from a distance, it, it's hard for me to say. It just seems crazy to me. <laughs> you
0: know, when we give look at U.S. as an example, um, people tend to look at Democrats as the left and Republicans as the right. You have come on the show and, and talked a, a lot about why that isn't necessarily the case. Just within the context of the conversation, could you remind us again what what exactly is the left the right liberals are liberals the left
1: yeah sure i mean the the most basic definition of left and right you can break it down to the the right is happy with uh stasis the status quo tradition Uh, and is accepting of hierarchy, including differences in in wealth and power, when that hierarchy is viewed as just and proper. And the left is uh, less accepting of of hierarchy, wants uh, a flatter, more equal kind of power structure, whether that's political or economic power, uh, and is very open and accepting of change. And so, you know, that that because of those definitions, different periods of time we'll see very different kind of instantiations of, of left-wing ideas or policy and right-wing ideas and policy. Um, but in the in the last century, the left was was characterized by uh, anti-capitalism and anti-imperialism. And of course, the ideas that they had to replace those varied a lot, but those were were pretty uh, uh, consistent attributes of the left. And on the right, you had uh, pro-capitalism. Um, and that was kind of a, the, the the unifying thing uh, on the right, and also in favor of tradition. And, of course, that varies quite a lot depending on what part of the world you're in. In the U.S., that would be you know, old-style Christian morality uh, uh, aspects of, of religion and the culture, et cetera. So then uh, when you evaluate the Democrats and the Republicans today, if you're using that kind of global left-right spectrum, not a, a country-specific left-right spectrum. Well, then you don't have a left option because the Democrats are not anti-imperialist. They're not anti-capitalist. Neither are the Republicans. So you basically just have different varieties of right. And the Republicans are right-wing on uh, you know, pro-empire, pro-capitalism. Democrats are right on pro-empire, pro-capitalism. But where they differ is the Republicans are further right on cultural issues, social issues, uh, anti-abortion, etc. And the Democrats are more left, but just on social cultural issues. So they can be, at at times, some of the most left uh, of major parties in the world when it comes to issues like uh, uh sexual minority rights or anti-racism um, but you know those are are pretty minor when you when you look at it look at them in policy terms like what what kind of policies are they pushing for what impact would they have uh in the, the social realm compared to the realm of foreign policy the military and economics is is pretty minor
0: wondering Peter if one of the reasons why um, the so-called progressive parties, um, you know, whether it's in the U.S. or other parts of the world, uh, are not getting votes from the poorest people in the nation um, is because they are not actually progressive nor left in the first place. I'm talking about these political parties in in many parts of the world, especially the U.S., but even a little bit here in Malaysia, it seems like both sides are, are not offering. Concrete solutions to change the existing economic model um, to redistribute wealth from the the top one percent to the ninety nine percent of the masses. So the battle just becomes about culture wars. So then the people, you know, the masses are looking at, at these two parties and thinking that, well, if both parties have fundamentally just accepted the economic model and the systems and that billionaires are going to win and that's how the world works and that's how the economy works, then at least one side is offering me something emotional.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's uh, pretty spot on. Uh, it, it reminds me of uh, something that Philip Converse wrote, like in the '50s or '60s, that that I think was true for a very long time and might only be becoming less true today. He said, "The left always has a a, uh, a larger natural constituency. That is, like the, the the masses of working people, non-rich people, are the natural constituency of the left, but it's a much more disorganized." Uh, constituency it's much less educated so uh, for for these people who would be that natural constituency to actually recognize where their their true economic interest lies and when I say true I mean the economic interest that would uh, improve their their lives but the right has a much smaller natural constituency that is the 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 wealthy people with more power, uh, but they're much better organized. So that has been the kind of situation of the the right and the left for a very long time, and it might only be changing uh, now if you if you look at uh, I think it was uh, uh, Piketty that that wrote this book Capital and Ideology, talking about the Brahminization of the left that throughout a lot of of Western countries. The left the big left-ish or left of center party has been attracting more and more the higher educated and the people without a college education tend to be shifting more to the right so that seems to go against the trend that that converse was pointing out half a century ago but the one area where it 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 kind of is uh, almost fully reversed is in this area of, of culture war because for to understand really the left wing or the liberal, Position on a lot of these culture war issues almost requires a college education. Um, and for a lot of these things, like the the nature of identity, uh, the nature of, of human sexuality and its diversity, it's not something that is intuitive. It's something that really you have to learn. And I've I've learned a lot uh, about these sorts of culture war issues. Uh, myself, it's not you know the, the these this is not information that we're born with, right? So in that sense, the the left in the culture war arena looks more like Philip Converse's right because it's a naturally smaller constituency. You you really do need a college education or something like that. You know, friends who read or you read a lot and you become. You know, in terms of education or, or your knowledge, much the same as someone with a college education. Whereas the right in the culture war area has a kind of larger natural constituency. That is people who haven't learned uh, about you know th- these these issues in depth and are just simply go with their intuitive reaction, which is, you know, let's stay with the status quo. This seems new and different and weird. Let's just go with uh, w- what makes us comfortable. So in that way, a, a strange way, uh, a focus on culture war kind of flips the tables and gives the right a kind of natural advantage and the left a disadvantage because to understand these culture war issues you do need to to, to spend some time learning about them. Um, so I think in in that sense it's kind of just uh, buttressing the the point that you made before that, Uh, These culture war issues very well might be an effective way of of diverting people whose economic interests naturally would push them towards the left. But if the left isn't offering them any policies that would actually make that so, policies that would actually make left-wing parties and politicians beneficial uh, for the poor and working class, then I I can't disagree with you. Then it's just, okay, well, I'm not getting anything there. Uh, might as well just go with what pleases me in the culture war realm right but when it comes to like what what should be done the only way that less powerful people have been able to gain political power is by taking advantage of their only advantage which is their numbers but to take advantage of numbers you can't just have you know millions of individuals uh, expressing their interest individually they have to be organized so to me it just seems like it's a it's a relatively simple, uh, as, at least conceptually, a simple matter of spreading ideas and organizing people, or educating and organizing people. And if if we could get to the the uh, point where we have uh, people committed in an organized fashion to educate more people, spread ideas, and get them into the same organization to act as one politically, I, I think that's really the only uh, uh, way forward. I can. I can imagine, but it it certainly has worked in the, in the past. It's just, you know, we're up against, uh, ideas that can be, you know, very superficially appealing and really their only advantage is they're, they get spread much more by the most powerful, uh, media that we have. Uh, and we, we lack that, that, that same, uh, kind of weapon or, or, or technique. Uh, we don't have. Billions of dollars to spend on on media outlets uh, or political campaigns. We have to somehow find a way to take advantage of of the one advantage we do have, which is numbers.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today, Peter.
1: Thank you, dashran Fun uh, as ever.
0: That was Associate Professor Peter Beattie, He's a lecturer in the Chinese University of Hong Kong. He's a social psychologist, media researcher and expert in political economy. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my or pretty much wherever we get your podcasts from. I'm Rashan Johan and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9.